Alright guys, welcome to the 16th episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I interviewed Dave Tanny. Dave Tanny is the physical preparation coach with the Seattle Sounders soccer team in the United States. And on this episode, me and Dave discussed everything and anything to do with energy system development. As with all the shows until now, this was an extremely informative interview. And I hope you guys really enjoy it. Okay, Mr. David Tanny, uh, as with all my guests, it's an honour to have you on the podcast. Just for anyone who's not too familiar with who you are, can you just fill us in with your background? Um, I am, uh, well, first I want to thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. We've talked plenty in the last uh, couple of years. But I'm yeah. currently the head fitness coach for the Seattle Founders. Um, been here since 2009. Prior to that, I was in Kansas City for two years, 2007-2008. Uh, then uh, originally from the Washington, D.C. area, uh, went to school at first Georgia, uh, Virginia Tech, played soccer a little bit after that, uh, finished my degree at George Mason, went to the grad program at George Mason, did the fitness conditioning for the men's and women's soccer at George Mason, and worked with the Washington Freedom with the women's pro team um, at the old a couple of different variations of the women's pro league at the time. And then, uh, you know, kind of luckily, George Mason uh, worked with a great coach, Greg Andrulis, who had just left the Columbus crew. So basically got a got an introduction at George Mason to do two years of pretty much pro-level type training with athletes every day, which set me up well when I went to Kansas City. So in a nutshell, that's how I got to where I am now. What do, what do you think are the br- biggest problems with strength and conditioning as a whole? Well, just just the in in, in, in the the industry. Yeah, it's it's a it's a what's what they like. You can open up a can of worms. It's, it's a loaded question, as yeah. I say. But just in your in your own opinion, uh, it, what what would you say is is the is the biggest biggest issue that you see? I think the the biggest issue is the the disconnect that seems to happen between the strength conditioning specialists and the uh, team sports head coaches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times they're speaking different languages, there's some semantic issues as well as, as philosophy issues, but they never really seem, the biggest danger I think is that the strength conditioning coach and the team sport coach never really get on the same page right off the bat. They don't really know how to use each other effectively they're really nervous kind of with the work that the other is doing in their own environment, that they're tiring them out or um, not really see the transfer of training you know, either way. And um, so I think we're seeing more and more people that are able to bridge that gap. But you know, part of it, I think, is set up in the U.S. with the, the college strength conditioning system where you have these college strength coaches that are all very, very good coaches, but, they're, but they're, their job is to train 10, 12, 14 teams, uh, totally beyond out of the team sports environment. And, that, and that's, that can become a no-win environment for some of those strength conditioning coaches because that they're, trying to, they're trying to give these athletes what they need without that kind of daily communication and relationship with the team sport coach. So that's, that's what, I, what I see is going on. That, that I think it's getting better, and I think different teams and different programs and different colleges are making gains in this area but I, I think that's, that's kind of where we're at now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so a 
for anyone who's listened to this and they're familiar with who you are and your background and myself, I suppose they kind of just want us to get into the meat and potatoes and really want us to talk about energy system development. Now, energy system development, as, as you as you well know, I think for a lot of coaches, and I came from this background, was something that was always done at the end of, of a workout. You know, we did our warm-up and our power work and our strength work, and then we went into our conditioning work. And then... Just give me a second, David. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that. Yeah, you can go. You can go ahead. Okay, so okay. just, just sorry, I'll just finish off that question. So, with regards to energy system development, from the background a lot of coaches uh, came from and who listens to this, it would have been just something that was done at the end of of uh, of training sessions. You know, it was kind of like you did your strength work and then your conditioning, but. Lately, what's coming from the likes of yourself and Joel James is you can't really seem to separate these two qualities as, as if you look at them through more of a biochemical or energy system lens. So, if you just maybe want to touch onto that. Yeah, I think that well, it goes back to the first point of what are the issues, and I think that that because because strength conditioning coaches have had limited time with athletes, they they become very compartmentalized, and therefore they want to put everything into one session. Um, and then they're not really seeing that the energy systems demand of what the team sport coaches are actually putting into the training, and 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 so that so there's no for years I think they really didn't fit together, and now I think that that you're seeing that one on the energy system side that you probably need more volume of work than you really get just in a little ten minute block at the end of a of a strength session. And two, the type of work that you're doing, you know, whatever your goal is for where you want to take an athlete, it's got to be in conjunction with whatever they're doing on the field with with their team sport coach. And this is all depending on if we're talking about team sport athletes, which I'm, I'm making the assumption now that that's, that's what we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, we'll say, we'll say um, team sport athletes, yeah. speak about testing then so if you were working w- with a team we'll just say soccer and we know soccer is a lactic aerobic what are what sort of testing do you do and then from the testing what does that tell you and, and how does how does that influence your program design um yeah i think one would be doing testing on the testing at the beginning of the year becomes crucial because i think one of the one of the things that i'm bombarded with often by by coaches is about the testing process and do we test and typically in our pre-season, pre-season test we'll still do a, a yo-yo or, or a beep test um, we'll do a 10 meter 30 meter sprint test we will do a vertical jump a single vertical jump as well as a 10 second a lactic capacity jump mm-hmm. and an agility test mm-hmm. 
we put, put all those together, and so what you have there, you have your starting point of where your athlete's at. I think in terms of the testing, we have to look at everything as, as a year-on process. So your testing in, in your preseason is really letting you, my opinion, it's letting you know what the starting point is for your athletes and how much detraining has happened from the year before. Because mm-hmm. I think your how much how much detraining has happened will then let you know how fast you can go into your high intensity work once your preseason starts. And then hopefully you're seeing you're judging your program by are we year to year to year making some gains in, in some of our aerobic fitness qualities and our and our speed power qualities. So I think your testing is is your starting point. I've seen teams in Italy that will you know, test the VO2 max, let's say, four times a year and really look at fluctuations in aerobic ability. And, and I think there's some value in that to the practicality. And some team system doesn't allow that. But I think it is good to continue to test over the course of your year, if you can, to, to see how the aerobic system fluctuates. Um, because it will fluctuate, and, and it may mean you have to make some interventions in your training program. But I think that's that's the goal that you you know that you want to get out of it because again it goes back to what's going on in the weight room versus what's going on 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 the field and training and then how is that affecting the aerobic system and your speed power development. So let's say you do your your test and and you see some guy he's very aerobically not fit but alactically he's very good he's powerful and then let's say you have another guy who's the exact opposite he he's. Uh, He's the opposite to this guy, so he's not powerful, but he's aerobically fit. Would you give both of these guys the same program, a generic one, or obviously would you individualize it? Say you need to focus more on power, a lactic sort of system. You need to focus more on aerobic. Yeah, I think you see both definitely. That's something where you see both ends of the spectrum uh, within your team, where you have these you know, fast strikers that aerobically may lose their fitness very quickly in the off season, and you've got to make sure that. That type of guy, if he comes in preseason and he hasn't done the aerobic type of work, then he's going to blow up in preseason and probably have some muscle issues and all that. Um, the the uh, the flip side is you're very aerobic. Is a is a wide guy that can get it, get up and down the field. Seems to be pretty resilient to uh, to loading. He's also a guy that will slow down over the course of the year, slow down over the course of, of his career. And so, yeah, you've really got to prioritize with that guy more of the elastic power and maximal strength and those type of things. So mm-hmm. clearly, we, it, it, you, know, you, you hit a good point that we really have to identify, you know, kind of put, as Patrick Ward like used the phrase, like put athletes in buckets. And, um, that's something that, that I think we've learned how to do here. Of what type of athletes do you have? What do they need when they detrain specifically? How do they detrain, and then how do you then have to give them the right uh, stimulus in the in the weight room, or or you know doing some field work to kind of balance out how they how they naturally kind of adapt to to training, or or how they change when they stop training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I think what people struggle with. Uh, Patrick's made a great point to me lately. He was saying that I think a lot of people who are looking this through maybe like we'll say 
you know kind of the athletes performance or MBSC model and who people who are influenced by that and I am one coach who would be very influenced by that model and they, they keep asking guys like yourself and Patrick you know how can we implement this with our system with our system and Patrick's kind of going you can't you need to actually let go of your belief system which is your system to kind of use this sort of training system so can you just maybe expand on that as well maybe just because we're you know we were speaking about the kind of compartmentalization of of certain qualities and actually doing that is detrimental if you're trying to focus on one certain quality yeah but i think if you look at if you look at a lot of the way these programs have gone and a lot of the programs that kind of let's say in the private setting you can have a lot of more beginner type athletes or athletes with a lower training age and and you can train in a one size fits all type of type of uh, system and you're going to see gains um, as as athletes you know, in my opinion is that as athletes move up and they're at a higher and higher level and then positionally they become more specialized in what their needs are mm-hmm. and then you get a very Specific, varied type of athletes for, for each different position, then, yeah, then I think it becomes clear that you can't have a one-size-fits-all type, type program, and you, you've got to then have that understanding that different athletes need different volumes of different type of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and once I think, once you come to that understanding, that you kind of realize, okay, well, maybe I need to shift my model a little bit away from, I'm going to do six different parts, 10 minutes each part, it's a nice hour session to, okay, this athlete, instead of just having a 10 minute block on maximal strength, I really need to focus on maximal strength a lot more with this athlete. Mm -hmm, mm The, the, you know, kind of elastic, very powerful sprinter type athlete needs a higher volume of aerobic work during certain blocks in the off season. So I really need to focus on, giving him a 30 minute block and, and I think then once you kind of see that that specialization individualization you kind of realize that, okay maybe I need to tweak this kind of overall program and, and just just modify things and again it's not you know, it's not like you have to, if you have a team of 30 players you're going to have 20 different programs I think you can do it all and creating kind of three to four different models where the volume yeah. of the different types of work are different so. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah I mean Patrick kind of put it very simply one day he's just like what's well he's just like what's the goal of this block and he says well then the majority of your block should be focused towards attaining that 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 adaptation so I mean you know know, when you kind of get down to the nuts and bolts of it it really is kind of that simplistic if you want to make it as well I mean he's just basically saying that your methods need to equal what your goal is like or your goal needs to equal what your methods is but um just with regards Dave something maybe I struggle as well I understand the block model and you know people are always again they're kind of looking for these examples examples and it's, it's t- I notice it is tough to do because everyone's it, it, it depends on the situation but a rough kind of model I, I see I expose is do we do sort of, sort of aerobic development and then alactic power and then alactic capacity and then um this sort of model so they'd say maybe block one we focus on aerobic sort of capacity and block two electric power and block three electric capacity what's like what are your views on that too or like i asked you all jameson again like so when you test a guy and you test you know you do all your tests and and he's just weak in one area so again he's weak maybe just he's very strong aerobically but he's very weak electrically is all your eight weeks prep then just focus towards electric like do you do any 
do you do any aerobic work is it needed like Joel said it's not obviously if, if, if his aerobic system is, is fine like it's just looking at the old classic block models they kind of still had these kind of you know sort of like if you look at Bompa's kind of more classic models like you know kind of a work capacity block into a hypertrophy block into a kind of a strength block and a power block what, what's your opinion on that are you just testing finding what's weak and then you're just focusing on that yeah I mean our again on the, just purely the practicality side we have kind of a, a special environment obviously my philosophy similar to Joel I mean, with Joel in, in preparing MMA athletes I kind of a, have a similar type environment in that I have typically postseason I've got about an eight week block that I can that I can train guys as, a, as an off season type period kind of get them where I want them to be before the preseason starts and and what I have found most effective because <clears throat> you're coming off the season break up things into two four week blocks the first four week block is pretty much specifically aimed towards what their weakness may be mm-hmm. um, and then the second four week block as they're getting closer to preseason you, you clearly have to create kind of a more uh, specific work capacity where they're getting ready Okay, keep going. So, so, so I think you know a lot of a lot of times I feel like we've got a lot of you know, young young coaches out there that really you know they're reading about the block periodization and they're reading stuff from you know Rekoshansky and Isserine and you know, some coaches like that and and they create this kind of mythical system in their head that there's this you know kind of magical sequence of, of blocks that we have to use when the practicality side of it is that really we're taking athletes after a long season we're really seeing where there is some you know, decay in some of their specific traits whether it's aerobic whether it's power um, and then we're using the four week block the first four week block to really address those issues mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. the second four week block then becomes a little bit more to to prepare them specifically for the demands they're about to meet in preseason, mm-hmm. and and then we found uh, a lot of the success. But once preseason starts, those guys are ready. And as a, as a practical example, I mean, we've got our central defenders. We found are typically these bigger, stronger, powerful, you know, glycolytic, lactic type of athletes. That over the course of the season, they just kind of lose their aerobic fitness, and part of it is. They're very, very glycolytic during games, and through training sessions, if you look at a lot of GPS days during training sessions, a lot of times your central defender is the ones that don't don't quite cover a lot of those middle velocity, low velocity type distances, mm-hmm. and what you end up with is an athlete that on the aerobic side needs some work, and so we plugged in kind of alternating weeks of either one one time per week or two times per week of these you know, cardiac power intervals that I think are in, termed in Joel's book. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of like a five by two to five by three minute kind of high intensity interval type work where um, we really you know, try to get the heart rate up above 90% you know, for, for two to three minutes and keep it there. And, and in the one case this year, we had a, we had a player who 2,000 
preseason game, he played 45 minutes. He was in his 90% zone, his heart rate, for about 26 minutes in his first preseason game, the central defender. Went through this program this past offseason, and the first preseason game this year, he was in his 90% zone three minutes for his first preseason game, mm-hmm. about 45 minutes. So already you can just see in terms of the heart rate response you're getting and the gain in aerobic fitness that you know, we were very successful with that intervention. So. So that's, that's the type of thing I think when you're really looking at block periodization and putting in what what guys are, are really doing in the offseason, that's, that's really what you're trying to hit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that clears up a lot now in my mind. Dave, I don't know, did you see the articles about Dan Baker's um, maximum aerobic speed? And if you have, what's your opinion on them? Um, I mean, I definitely think there's something there. I mean, I think whether it's whether it's uh, Dan Baker maximum aerobic speed, whether it's uh, Martin Bouchet uh, thirty fifteen IFT stuff, mm-hmm. um, there's definitely something there in terms of uh, uh, you know, this intermittent kind of this intermittent type of work where there's a pretty strong aerobic contribution, and over time you're going to get uh, you know increased aerobic response and increased aerobic recovery from this. From this uh, intermittent type work, uh, I think there's the secret is in getting, I think, the velocities right and kind of that that work demands right, and that it's that it's enough to stimulate the uh, you know, aerobic system and 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 get the recovery without without making it into just you know, really difficult shuttles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of the the beauty of what these things are doing. The maximum aerobic speed or the thirty fifteen IFT stuff is just to get to make sure that guys are working in that right zone so they can actually recover in the periods that, that you know, the, in the intermittent recovery periods. Dave, when you say to some coaches, especially kind of younger coaches get into the field, that the aerobic system is very, very, is, is so important with regards to intermittent sports and they kind of, you know, come from the background, they come from, the, you know, they believe, oh, it's not aerobic, you know, aerobic, they still have the thought of, the thoughts of long slow distance that makes you slow and you kind of say to them well actually the aerobic system is probably the predominant system in these sports like can you just explain why the aerobic system is so important with regards to you know field and court sports you know things like soccer and and, and uh, in Ireland here Gaelic games rugby and then also yeah. you know the court sports you know being tennis etc and all that can you just ex- yeah, yeah. Ex- explain its contribution why it's so important yeah well I mean I, I, I think I've tried to term in the past but I think you know, most of what we're looking for in our team sports athletes are the ability to create power. Yeah. You know, intermittently, intermittently create power, and then to be able to sustain that intermittent power output over the course of uh, however long the event is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the creation of power part is more kind of the elastic, and then ends up being a little bit glycolytic. But a huge component of the the ability to kind of maintain this power output is is aerobic. Mm-hmm. How fast can you recover from this intense work and, and the, the size kind of your aerobic engine can really, I think, help, help athletes recover faster. And when it comes to sprinting, a lot of the you know, kind of creatine phosphate stores that you really want to have recover so you can sprint again. I mean, the, the aerobic system is you know, huge at helping that creatine phosphate system kind of recover between sprints. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, and then I think there's even really a recent study out, I think by Gabbitt, uh, that talked about um, 
think it was a rugby study in Australia by, by Gabbett, that the athletes, they looked at kind of GPS data and uh, in, incidents of injury, and they found that the athletes, they were covering more low-velocity and medium-velocity distances uh, within these rugby matches were actually the ones most resilient to injury, mm-hmm. which I thought was fantastic study because it's kind of the first time to say, okay, your ability to cover distance at these aerobic speeds probably means you have a well-developed aerobic system, which probably means you're more resilient to uh, muscle injuries. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of one of the first times, you know, we, we, we talk about uh, people really get get stuck on, you know, speed, power, and aerobic capacity, and they're all very, very important, but I think from the recovery side of things, your, your aerobic system is what's going to help you get rid of all the waste, get rid of the lactate that builds up kind of in between all these maximal events. So that's, that's typically what I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not only important for replenishing the lactic system within the actual training session or game itself, but even it's very important to help you recover from session to session and also from, from game to game as well. Yeah, yeah. And again, if you look at the difference in kind of heart rate variability uh, scores between your your endurance athletes versus your non-endurance athletes. I mean, these, these athletes with these huge aerobic systems, their, their heart rate variability is far more stable, mm-hmm. which would typically seem to indicate that, that these guys would get back in a really good recovery state faster. They'd recover between events. Uh, they'd be able to... Um, have their muscles turn around a little bit faster than those who aren't. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think those are all things we're still. I mean, and, you know, most of the stuff that I'm saying, it's all, it's all, it's all stuff. We, you know, we still don't totally know everything. Of course, I think research is telling us more and more every day. Um, that's why sometimes I'm hesitant. Where you know, we've got again a lot of young coaches that will read certain things, get stuck on certain things, but we. We're learning more, especially with a lot of the, the GPS and time motion studies, and, and you know, they're trying to figure out, let's say, with uh, uh, creatine kinase levels post post exercise, post matches, what that really means. I mean, we're we're starting to learn more about the tie-ins between the aerobic system and fatigue and recovery and heart rate variability, and we can connect a lot of the dots. But you know, I'm sure five, ten years from now, we're going to be a lot further along than we are now. Just to get into a bit more programming and I suppose um, program design and if you like for a word practicality, let's just talk about the aerobic, lactic and lactic systems, how you test them and then just your favourite sort of methods at improving the power and capacity of the system. So just with the aerobic system, I've heard you know rest and heart rate obviously and a bleed test or a modified Cooper's test. Just could you explain the test and methods and then also what are your favourite techniques to improve the uh, power and capacities of the aerobic system? Um, well, we, here in Seattle, I mean, we use the, the beat test purely because that's what our head coach has used. That's what he prefers. He likes to use it, and we've continued to do it. I think the more I've gone along, the less I'm actually concerned with which test it actually is. You know, sometimes I'm asked by coaches, like, you know, you know would you rather use the other intermittent? Would you do a modified Cooper? Do you do a peep test? And anything that's going to be in that five 
10 to 12 minute range of this maximal aerobic effort I think is important and as we're looking at the recovery post that event mm-hmm. it's kind of the goal of, of really assessing the, the system so do I think that a Cooper test is specific to playing a team you know, field sport with all the cutting and changing directions no but I also think that can you can you gain a lot of information about the aerobic system by someone doing a modified Cooper test yeah, yeah. Yeah. So whether it's a six-minute test or whether it's a 12-minute test or whether it's a beep test, it's something where you really want your athletes to push as hard as they can to get a max, make it a maximal aerobic event, see how long they can last in that event relative to the other members in the team, and then hopefully you have enough data to know where they stand and, and you know, in Within within the group of athletes that have typically participated in that, now we've got you know, beat test scores for the last six to ten years in MLS, so we know exactly what we're looking for during that test. Um, and then and then you have a good sense of where the athletes at. Mm-hmm. Uh, speed power side, I think. Uh, you know, we we don't do a lot of testing within the weight room with pro soccer athletes. It's everything within a a. Uh, 10 meter, 30 meter sprint, and as I said before, we have a a uh, 10 second jump test that we do with our MegaWave system that looks at an alactic capacity and power test. We are looking at in the watts per kilogram how much an athlete can can put out over 10 seconds. Where then we have some benchmarks based on a lot of the the uh, data that they've that they've gotten from the same test within Europe. Do you take their rest and heart rate into account just when looking at the aerobic system? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what we do, obviously, of course, you know, we use the Omega Wave system here um, post in the recovery days all the time. So, I mean, we're, we, I mean, I know my starters resting heart rate mm. every week of the year. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, there are there have been times in, in during the preseason period when we've had guys, let's say, resting heart rate in the high 60s that we will try to give them a little bit more non-specific work during the preseason to get that down. Yeah. Some, but the, the thing you have to realize is, if you've heard a lot of Patrick Ward stuff, I mean, a lot of times you'll have someone that's really overly sympathetically driven mm-hmm. in terms of HRV. They're going to have higher resting heart rate scores. And is, that, is it that their HRV is poor that's responsible for a higher resting heart rate? Is that uh, poor cardiac output? And you kind of got to, that's why it's important to have someone directing heart rate over several weeks to really know kind of what what you're really responsible for that higher resting heart rate mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, just with regards then to the aerobic system I've heard you speak about you know the cardiac output methods if someone seems to have a central uh, adaptation issue so with regards to the actual cardiac output and strength of, of the heart and then there's also then this peripheral issue that it seems if they are centrally strong enough like they have a good resting heart rate but their aerobic scores are still low it seems that maybe it's more of a peripheral issue. Can you just speak on that then as well, the, the central versus peripheral sort of issues? Yeah, because I actually think that's one of the things where that, that's an area where there's a lot of coaches who start reading, again, Joel stuff and reading yeah. Rekoshansky, and they're talking about local peripheral adaptations and central adaptations. and um, They kind of just throw these, fra- throw these phrases around and you're kind of like, well, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and it can be really, it can be really confusing. And, and I was just talking to another young coach about this the other day, and, and we were talking about these kind of cardiac power intervals and, and um, in the, because they're out of the cardiac output zone that it must be peripheral adaptations was, was his claim. And, and, uh, and we were talking about it, and I was saying, well, listen, what you have to understand, there's some exercises. Like let's say you do a five by three minute interval, and your your heart rate gets you know, 93 to 95 percent at the end of these three minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, that obviously implies that there's there's blood lactate is very high. There's a lot of glycolysis going on. Um, but we're doing those exercises for this kind of myocardial contractility. Mm-hmm to really make the heart stronger. Mm-hmm. Now, there's probably a pretty big lactic glycolytic loading on the peripheral musculature in that, in that standpoint, which we may have to address with a training session later, but we're doing that exercise because we're trying to strengthen the heart. Yeah, 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 I get what you're saying. Now, there may also be some anaerobic adaptations that happen from the, from the peripheral side that, that we're not necessarily maybe that may not be the number one target of that exercise, but that's also going to be a target as well. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes you have, we forget that everything that we do at some level will have a load on the central and on, on the uh, peripheral yeah. kind of yeah. you know, systems. And, and now we have to, we have to be kind of clever and smart enough to know that, okay, well, I'm going to do these, you know, cardiac power intervals mm-hmm. and then, and then I'm going to, but I know that it's going to be extremely glycolytic. So now tomorrow I've got to take that into account and what I do because now maybe I've got to do something from the peripheral standpoint that's a little bit more aerobic driven. And that could be something you know, like a you know, tempo on and you know, it's, it's not, most likely it's going to be a lower intensity type, type uh, activity. But um, those are the types of decisions I think we have to use. And it's never, it's, I guess my point is it's never an either or. It's, it's never a, It's not that black and white, like. Yeah, yeah. Just with regard again, just the aerobic system before we move on. I, I know in Joel's book he says you would work on the kind of cardiac output before the cardiac power interval. So, are, are you? Would you say the same thing? Do you see the same thing? Would you work on so? It, like, of course, if the athlete needs it, if this is what they've shown that they need. Like, do you work on the capacity before the power with regards to the aerobic system? Or the cardiac. Well, I, I, I think that you should, and I think then it goes back to your individualization. Though. I think you're really yeah. looking at within your team how many athletes you have that you need that 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 type of work. Yeah, yeah. And if we have, let's say, in a preseason period, 30 players, we may only have three. Hopefully, hopefully uh, we don't have anyone, but normally we may only have three to four athletes mm-hmm. that need that type of work, which which is a good thing, and and. Again, with the cardiac output um, in that kind of 130 to 150 range, once an athlete has a pretty good level of aerobic fitness, pretty much the whole warm-up period, pretty much the first 30 minutes of every training session is a low-intensity type of activity that will fit into that cardiac output uh, zone. Can, can, you get so, a, can you actually get a player, though, I think you might have said this already, who is by just their nature, by their physiology, by their autonomic nervous system, 
that are sympathetic dominant and maybe that just the fact they are sympathetic dominant they always have a kind of a higher blood pressure higher heart rate like so what I'm trying to say is that maybe you as a coach you might be banging your head against the wall saying why can't this guy get his resting heart rate down but the reality is that he's a very sympathetic dominant sort of player now also we don't want him to get too sympathetic but I suppose would would the Omega Wave show this over you know if you keep kind of looking yeah. at it in a week's time and you kind of say well maybe he's just he's just naturally a sympathetic sympathetic type of person like yeah I think that's one of the reasons why then just some sort of power variability tool can be effective as well because then you you will see okay this guy has a high resting heart rate but he also is very sympathetic dominant and we have to take that into account and that may not just be cardiac output work that could very much be with some recovery modalities with some soft tissue work to try to get him back where we we uh yeah, because I I think I think initially too like I I've read the work of um this a man called Francis Pottinger Senior now he also had a son who did who did more research with, with um nutrition with cats and all this but his father studied uh, neurophysiology he was kind of one of the first physicians to study the autonomic nervous system and you know he he was talking mainly about how different nutrients and stuff can stimulate different branches of the autonomic nervous system but I think a lot of people kind of think sympathetic is bad like you know you need to be more parasympathetic but the reality is that you get people who are more parasympathetic and get people who are more sympathetic and it's just kind of getting them to be more balanced so they have a more balanced ANS like so so um what what yeah. what, what, what yeah, I, mean, I think you have to have both I mean I think yeah, the, yeah. Uh, you know, I read an article on um, HRV and uh, that I thought was, was interesting and they really pointed out if you really look at your elite level athletes the goal of an elite level athlete from an autonomic standpoint is I'm about to compete. Yeah. yeah I turn yeah. up that sympathetic, that turn up that fight or flight, that gives me that you know extra energy, stimulus, rush, whatever you want to call it, that helps me compete. Mm-hmm. And then the moment that I'm done, I can switch it off and I get down in a slightly parasympathetic state that helps me recover. And and but I can go one way or the other. And where you get your issues are your athletes the one they go to compete or they go to train and they turn it on and then training's done and now they can't turn it back off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the ones that go into that kind of overreaching and overtraining syndrome where they turn it on or they can't turn it on. Let's say they can they can turn it on, that sympathetic drive. Training ends and now they swing way far over uh, to the parasympathetic side because mm-hmm. their, their, their body really is is in an overtraining syndrome trying to shut some things down and uh, you know you want both ends but what you're really looking at is okay post training whether that's later in the day or that's next morning how has your body responded from a autonomic standpoint to the load you put on it yesterday and is it back in balance is it stuck on the sympathetic and has it come down or is it swung way too far to the other side before we, just before we move on to the alactic system and just some methods and that, what are your favorite methods to improve the aerobic system when needed? Um, I think most, it's funny, I think as coaches, you know, our goal is, is to, well, I've already said in terms of your, your central type work, your kind of five by three minute intervals, I think have been very effective I think at the end of the day, most when we're on the field, most work within our team trainings we do every day are going to be should be in that aerobic zone. Yeah. And then it's up to me and one of my jobs with 
with the club is to say, okay, now who's who's having their own relying glycolysis? Who's having to be overly anaerobic within within these training sessions? And now we have to watch these these uh, these guys. So um, I think that if you if you know we talk about the Charlie Francis high low, if we're alternating days where we have these very very high heart rates, the next day is a kind of lower lower intensity type day and, and now we have to choose the exercises and you know, most of the stuff that I do you know, nine months out of the year is on the field so we're trying to help the coaches choose the right exercises to keep their, their heart rates where they are you should see a kind of good good uh, maintenance of aerobic ability if guys then need some supplemental type work um, I, I do believe very strongly in the Martin Bouchette type work of that, you know, 30-15, or I found kind of a 15 seconds of, of higher intensity can be very specific work, 15 seconds rest. We can do four to five of the bouts of that type of work on the field. It's a very strong aerobic stimulus with about the jump up. Also, as well as the 30 seconds on and 30 seconds off again on the field. Um, you know, those are kind of the types of tools we'll use during the season to, to uh Maintain a little bit further. Then, w- with the lactic system, David, what what would be your favorite sort of methods? And like, even even within the weight room, also and the field, like if you want to get both. Yeah. had a friend ask me uh, he came up with a good point as well the other day like you know he was saying okay strength and power are, are both they both kind of they are both a-, a lactic in nature but he's saying like what if you have a guy 
who he's actually strong but his rate of force development is poor would you just prescribe more rate of force development type exercises still kind of this team of he still needs he's still kind of working this alactic system if that makes does that make sense does that question make sense yeah 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 then i mean that's just that type of that type of athlete i think would just you'd focus more in terms of your uh your plyometric type work so. yeah yeah because you like i'm just saying from the old again going back to kind of the more compartmentalized approach you know the old coach say oh he's strong but he needs to work on more power so he needs to work yeah. more power so whereas kind of the lens you guys seem to come from is more again just the, the three energy systems and how the, you produce the energy through the sport and just this person was kind of saying well you know would you still not say okay you can train the electricity for strength and power but if, if one guy needs more rate force development and I was just saying she probably would just do more rate force development work then with him and it's still kind of going through that electric approach so yeah I mean, I, I mean I, it's you can still put everything within the same type of thing. I mean, we've used, yeah, yeah. and Joel's book has the, the aerobic plyometrics, which I think can be a little bit uh, hard to understand, you know, but we, we have done kind of like a 15-second on, 15-second off aerobic plyometric type type of work as well. But there's also a very strong uh, repeat sprint ability uh, stimulus as well. Would you ever use the, um, the explosive repeat method, David? I've actually used that. I, I like that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think those, those are they're very good too. Mm-hmm. So, no, there's nothing wrong with just saying. Yeah. When when we're talking about the alactic and a little bit glycolytic, you know, whatever it is, I mean, it's, at the end of the day, that's there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, later for development is what is uh, not what we want. So we have to do maybe some sort of uh, reactive type work. We have to work on elasticity and, you know, yeah, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that as well. I mean, that's one of the things we do. Our elastic 10-second jump test is uh, with the Omega system where <clears throat> it takes a look at your power output over the 10 seconds. You basically jump as many times as you can within the 10 seconds, but you want the lowest contact time on the ground and obviously the, the highest flight time in the air. And then it looks at the ratio between contact time versus versus flight time and then makes a determination, okay, whether this athlete needs to spend more time just working on strength or whether this athlete needs to spend more time working on elasticity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, uh, it, and what we normally find too is, which shouldn't really be a surprise, is our really aerobic athlete, they tend to need more work on the elasticity side of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so again, just during the testing, as you know, we see those those two kind of correlate with each other. Which then, when you go into your alactic phase that you, you know, want to talk about, then that that's going to be a goal of that type of athlete in the off season. So, soccer, of course, obviously, as we said a few times, is a lactic aerobic as well as most field sports. So, does the lactate system or any methods to improve the lactate system? And I, I know you, you, you've often said to me, we've talked before, and, and just for the listeners as well, when we're talking about aerobic, alactic, and, and aerobic, alactic, and lactic, all three systems are always working all the time. It's not yeah. like it's not like yeah. one turns off and one switches on. They're always working. Just no, like, no, if no. one is more predominant, so I, I I just had a feeling that you were going to say that probably at one stage. But um, yeah. do you actually well, ever? Let me be clear too. I mean, because what I was, I mean, <clears throat> go ahead. Yeah, probably two three years ago, I, I wrote that paper on kind of soccer as an aerobic aerobic sport, and yeah, and I think that part of me saying that at the time was I. I felt like there are so many coaches at that time.
time, and I think we, we you have seen a slight shift in yeah, yeah. the mindset and philosophy of a lot of coaches where you know, they, there was a huge anti-aerobic sentiment maybe three years ago, and, and um, everyone was talking about how the sport's anaerobic and blah, 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 and so I wrote a paper that said, well, I think soccer is really alactic aerobic. But the reality is that yeah, all three systems are working at the same time, and I think what I would say is, Soccer is not elastic aerobic, but you would like it to be as elastic aerobic as you can make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There will be times you must rely on your on your plastic. I, I, I think that's a great that's a great way of putting it because even even with regards to Gaelic games, which is very similar with regards to like the, the you know soccer energy system wise. Uh, like I also I I kind of said saying it's a lactic aerobic, but then I I I actually kind of say it's well it's probably more a lactic capacity. So you probably do become a little bit lactate, but you're trying not yeah. to. Yeah, you're trying not to become. Because yeah. I I think you would know, love yeah you would love for every time you make a sprint for your you know lactic stores to recover fully and yeah. then you just go again and you can make your next sprint. But the reality is, within the demands of the game, is we end up having to make more sprints than we can recover for. Yeah, yeah. We, we hope that we can recover from all of them sufficiently, but at some point in the game, we will be reliant on glycolysis to help get us through, but we also hope that our aerobic system can help us recover very quickly from that and that we <clears throat> are as you know, not as reliant on it um, as, you know, as reliant, as little as possible, I guess mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you could say. I think I think I heard you say before you you, you want to stay as you want to stay in the aerobic system for as long as you can basically you're, you're trying to produce as much energy as you can aerobically for, before you go into any glycolysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's more after I make a sprint, how how recovered am I before I have to make the next sprint? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And and if I you know if I can't be fully recovered and I'm going to go over time, you're going to see this kind of build up in blood lactate. Mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. You've seen some of the research studies on the kind of movement demands within within a competitive level soccer match. I think Banks Bow and some of those researchers have done a ton of studies on that. And you see, okay, blood lactate levels on average are not that high over a game. Yeah. However, during the most intense periods, you can see you know blood lactate levels of you know twelve to fourteen millimoles per liter, kind of in that in that level, which are which are high, but the average is somewhere between four to five millimoles per liter, so maybe just at the anaerobic threshold or just over the anaerobic threshold on average. So on average, our aerobic system is pretty dominant, but there's always going to be periods where blood lactate is very high, which means that we've had to utilize you know, glycolysis over certain parts to help get us through those events. So with just with regard to, to just the lactate system and train and and training the lactate system, do you ever use this with, with your guys at all? I, I think I, I think you said like using some lactate methods maybe from more of a mental toughness standpoint is kind of good. And you're also saying you do get some mitochondrial mitochondrial um, adaptations well with regards to like the strength of the mito- mitocardium of the heart. Yeah, I mean I think let's say we go back to if we're going to do our fifteen on fifteen off or. Um, uh, 30 on, 30 off type of type of kind of we call it aerobic type work. But you know, of course, over time, there's going to be a, yeah, 
Can you, can, can you, can you just, yeah. just before you go on, Dave, can you just get. Oh, I was going to actually ask you to, to just expand on that because, again, a lot of coaches would say 30 on, 3 off is purely anaerobic. But, again, thanks to guys like you and Joel, you're like, it's not. Like, every every successive attempt is getting more contribution from the aerobic system. So, just explain, expand yeah. on that then. Yeah. Yeah, there's clearly some research out there that says that, that the, more, the more repetitions we do with this 15 seconds of work, maybe with 15 seconds of rest is that uh, eventually glycolysis kind of inhibits itself and the aerobic system must take over um, to provide energy for whatever work we're doing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. blood lactate is only going to get so high with, with that type of work. And then you, know, you, you, you see that there's a, a cycling exercise or cycling research where they did, I think, three 30-second bouts separated by... 90 seconds of rest in between and the first one there was a you know pretty strong reliance on glycolysis but by the last one you know the aerobic system was the main contributor um, so what's really telling us is is, is there a contribution of blood from glycolysis yeah there is but um, over successive times the contribution from the aerobic system will become stronger and stronger but you're getting you know, contributions from all three, and, and and there's clearly going to be some, if we look at our anaerobic or you know, lactic adaptations, there's going to be some some uh, buffering adaptations going on, which, you know, might help us with our, when we need to use glycolysis in the future. What was your view on the Tabata study, Dave? A lot of people quote that as if like it's the holy grail of interval training and improve the aerobic system, but I think uh, a few people are, uh, who are coming out saying, you know, a lot of people actually haven't read the research and that, you know, that yeah. it wasn't as, as hyped up as it really, the results weren't as great as they really, you know, were touted to have been. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one, I mean, interesting one there, the people in the Tabata study is probably follow one there, and, you know, not, not elite trained athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, one, so you're going to see pretty big gains. I think you saw some gains in VO2 max in that as well, um, which again shows that that uh, there was an aerobic stimulus there. But I think the big thing was that if you've seen a lot of research with the you know, Tabata-type protocols, that after about <clears throat> somewhere between four to eight weeks, and I think it gets, it gets shorter the more well-trained the athletes are, that, that the, the gains in fitness kind of plateau. So if you take an untrained subject, and you put them through that type of protocol, you're going to see some gains. But over time, in an over four to eight week period, I think eventually those gains are going to slow down. Um, which I think, and I think the other the other interesting thing within the Tabata study was that I think they did two days a week of lower intensity aerobic activity, I believe, in between their days of, uh, of the Tabata protocol. Um, which I think, again, supports this, this high-low idea of, okay, if you're balancing this high-intensity work with this low-intensity work, then you're going to see some gains, some aerobic gains as well, because you're, you're probably helping the aerobic system recover from crushing up the day before with the Tabata protocol. Yeah, yeah. Dave, can you just speak about, I believe uh, a lot of people, again, they, you know, they say like a lot of lactic work improves the aerobic system. But I think you were saying there's a there's a diminishing return. Is it like I, I think I I could be wrong, but I, I thought I read somewhere you said after four or six weeks of a lot of 
lactate kind of intensive lactate work it actually starts to reduce the mitochondrial density in the cell is that correct um so, yeah and i think that's yeah, and that, that's another area where we're we're starting to understand more but mentioned heart rate variability a few times and more than likely anyone who's kind of listened to this podcast has an idea what it is but just for anyone who doesn't just get into heart rate variability the omega wave maybe also speak about joel's bioforce as an option for some coaches to to purchase yeah yeah well i think joel's i mean when you want to talk about heart rate variability joel is probably the one above anyone else you want to talk to and he's uh
and then the interesting thing with Omega Wave is it does give you a metabolic profile as well, which which some other HRV technology doesn't give you. So we can tell is someone more aerobic versus more anaerobic glycolytic driven, and then you can see long term changes of training through that. Obviously, a pretty expensive system, and it's not really you know, something that a that a local triathlete or something like that is going to be able to purchase for their own use. And which is where, over time, Joel developed his BioForce technology, which tries to put that into a very economical kind of individual package that someone can use with their uh, with their smartphone to track HRV changes over you know, over weeks, months. Mm-hmm. How do you find? The relationship w- with the sports coach, I suppose you're you're in a situation now where you've developed a good relationship with Seattle Sounders. But initially, did you find it hard to turn around to a coach and say, "Listen, this guy can't can't do the hard work today. He needs to recover." Yeah, a lot of it depends on if the team's winning or the team's not winning. You know, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's the same for most of us coaches. Yeah, yeah, and I think we're all not. There's there's a huge practicality side to it, and the when the team is doing well, the training program seems to be working. That that the whole coaching staff is very responsive and, and listens very well, and and we have a good exchange of ideas. And and I think you're always in that balance of the psychology versus physiology. Mm-hmm. So there may be times when the player is fatigued, and I and I totally understand there's times when the player might be fatigued. And coming 
together and saying, well, this guy's really tired, he can't train today. Mm-hmm. So all you can ask is that the head coach can take into account you know, your report on where certain guys are and then be able to plan a session where you can hopefully choose activities that can unload the guys you want to unload uh, while still getting done what he wants to get done. So I think that's kind of the trick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just last one or two questions, Dave, and then I'll let you off. I appreciate your time. Uh, just small sided games Dave how, how do you incorporate these into training and, and also how do you incorporate them to get the adaptation and, stimulate and, and stimulation that you're looking to, to, to get so what's, say that one more time uh, with, just with small sided games how, how do you incorporate games, yeah. how do yeah. you incorporate those in, into pitch sessions and, and how, do yeah. you, how do you manipulate the small sided games to get certain adaptations that you're looking for yeah. no, I think so we're using the Catapult GPS system to see what's first point, and it's helped us really look at um, work demands within the small side of games, mm-hmm. and what we want to do. Would we rather use a 5v5 game? Would we rather use a 7v7 game? Uh, pitch sizes, and I think what we we've been able to find a pretty good balance of of again an individualized within, within positions, and you see. Let's say if we want a high-intensity day, heart rates are fairly high, and you're going to choose a 5v5 type of game, you're going to get, what we found is with a 5v5 type game, you're going to get a lot of change of directions, you're going to get a lot of short accelerations, you're going to get some fairly high heart rates, but you're not going to get a lot of longer sprints. Mm-hmm. And that may be something you want on that day, and that's fine. However, you you probably at some point are going to want to program in some bigger games that might be like a 7v7 type game where your wide players are making the same types of same types of runs that they're making within the game. You're getting a little bit more higher speed sprints. So again, you're working, let's say, uh, hamstring strength. Um, because within a 5v5 or smaller field, you're not going to get a lot of accelerations on longer sprints. Your wide players aren't going to get the same work demands they're going to get when they play in the real game. So I think what it's really helped us do is really match the exact work demands, which again, I think, it goes beyond just energy systems, but again, you know, musculature work demands. Mm-hmm. Um, it really match positionally what guys are getting. Because what I've what I found in the past is you've seen teams, it's pretty funny, you see a lot of teams through Europe and different places where they love doing a lot of, let's say, 4v4 and 5v5 type games. But then those same type teams can have rampant hamstring issues because their wide players are never making the 30, 40 yard sprints that they're going to make in a match. Mm-hmm. So I think it's got to be a balance. I think you've got to look positionally um, what the needs are and then choose the correct small side of games for that. Great stuff. Just finally, Dave, any good resources out there for coaches who want to learn more about, you know, energy system training and, and just any resources you'd recommend personally um, you know it's funny I just kind of I mean obviously we talked about Patrick Ward stuff and Patrick Ward uh, um, has a great blog <clears throat> just about what's going on between energy systems as well as HRV I think just recently you've got a uh, head fitness coach for uh, Vancouver Whitecaps Mike Young who has a fit for football kind of blog that's got pretty up to date on what's going on with all the research out there and is uh, I don't know how he does it because he works the same league as me but I put out one to two blog posts a day um, 
really good stuff. stuff great stuff um, Fin yeah. finally who who's your tip to win the English Premiership this uh, this coming season? Finally, Dave, what, what did you think of the Euros? Did you did you enjoy the Euros? The, the Spanish team were unbelievable, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, I never would have thought that a Spanish team could make possession soccer look almost boring in some games, but they but they certainly did it. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I think there were some really interesting things in the Euros. I mean, I think it was a shame in the final with Italy. Yeah, we faced that kind of an hour league where there's such a big there's a big difference between playing, you know, let's say you're on a Wednesday, Saturday kind of schedule, and you play Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday, Saturday, well, basically, if you have, especially if you're traveling somewhere, you play Wednesday night, Thursday becomes your a pure recovery day. Friday might be a travel day, but then Friday, you're still less than 48 hours from your previous game. And I guess in this, in this instance, I think the final is Thursday, Sunday. Um, but, the extra day, as much energy as Italy spent in their semi-final match versus Germany, that extra, the extra day that Spain had, Italy really needed that day. I don't think Spain would have needed that day as much, but the uh, Italy just kind of looked like they went on fumes in the final um, after being unbelievable against uh, uh, Germany yeah. in the semi-final. Yeah, yeah. Ireland. I think the idea, Ireland, well, Ireland, Ireland. Uh, well, at least at least our supporters had a great time anyway. So I suppose that compensates yeah. for the performances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot, a lot. I thought Italy was interesting too. I mean, I thought an interesting study in all this is someone like Andreas Pirlo, who uh, I thought was someone a part of the Euros who looked at uh, most of most of the data from the tournament, and that Andreas Pirlo very rarely made a sprint in the course of any match. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And yet, the distance he covered, the distance he covered to these kind of medium velocities and his ability to keep the ball and his ability to penetrate the other team you know, with, with their passes, uh, to me, was, was an example. On the aerobic side, Pirlo being 36, unbelievable. Yeah. What he was able to do. And the impact he made on where sometimes we get so caught up, especially in this country, on yeah, you know, speed, 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 power, 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 and again forgetting the aerobic 
it's yeah, that's that's a great observation, all right. Dave, um, that's an hour and ten minutes, and an hour going on an hour eleven, and I know, uh, along along with myself, anyone who's listening to this really appreciate appreciate your time and your information. Uh, it's great stuff. So um, I just want to okay. say I just want to say thanks uh, on behalf of everyone that's listening, and of course thanks to myself. And um, no doubt um, we'll do this again at some stage. And I just, okay. just want to say thanks, and I just uh, everyone who's listening as always, thanks for listening and downloading the podcast. I'll talk to you soon, guys. And um, take care.